Good morning. I'm so glad that you are with us to continue this teaching series on the book of Isaiah. And today, the theme of this message in Isaiah is the theme of wrath. God's wrath. I'm subtitling it, How Not to Come Out of a National Crisis. So preaching on God's wrath. Boy, that sounds like a real pick-me-up. That sounds like uh, something that uh, should be a lot of fun. You think, why would I want to hear a sermon on the wrath of God? Well, what is the wrath of God? See, when we think about wrath, I'm not sure we understand the wrath of God. God's wrath is his active, resolute opposition to all evil. Let's start with a definition. Again, the wrath of God is his active, resolute opposition to all evil. And that right there shows us God's wrath is not like human wrath, uh, losing your temper, flying off the handle. No, no, no. His wrath is perfect. It's not moody vindictiveness like a judge, slowly and deliberately, patiently sifting through all the evidence and clearly weighing out what must be done. Or like a surgeon who's going to methodically go after that cancerous tumor until she gets all of it, she's not going to quit. Why? Because she loves that patient. The problem, of course, with the judge and the surgeon when you talk about wrath are that these illustrations are sterile, impersonal. Uh, maybe the best illustration of wrath comes from my little nephew. Years ago, my little nephew wanted nothing more for Christmas than a Lego set. It was a Star Wars Lego set. Had tens of thousands of pieces, this thing. It was actually the Death Star, for those of you who are familiar with Star Wars. And my little nephew, uh, at Christmas, unwraps it, and sure enough, he gets what he wanted. He gets this Lego set. He goes into his room and begins putting together the Death Star, Lego brick by brick. Well, everyone else is, you know, hanging out, we're having fun, we, we go in and check on him. Isaac, buddy, you wanna, uh, you wanna come out and play? No. I only want to focus on the building of, of my creation and, uh, uh, you know, days go by. We're all having a great time. Finally, you know, he comes downstairs and he says in the words of only, only an eight-year-old would, would say this. He could have said, you know, hey, I want everybody to come see it. He could have said, hey, you know, it's done. Come check it out. No, in the words of only like an eight-year-old can put it. He comes downstairs, you know, bleary-eyed, having worked on this creation. And he says to us all, oh, I assure you. This Death Star is fully operational. <laughs> so we go upstairs and we go and check this thing out. And sure enough, it's, it's glorious. And he's smiling and we're smiling. And we're smiling about the fact that he delights in his creation. And he's looking at us. And here he's created this thing and he loves it. It's fearfully and wonderfully made, if you will. Now let me ask you, what if in that moment, as this little boy is delighting in his creation, if, if in that little moment, I, I took just one little Lego piece. Now, come on, it's one piece. There's 14,000 other bricks. What's the big deal? I took one little Lego piece and I pointed it in the wrong direction. Just kind of broke it off and pointed it off, off into space. Off, maybe off toward Alderaan. Too soon? Too soon. Now, anyway, I just pointed off. Now, let me ask you a question. Would he have been okay with that? Would he have said, that's okay if one little piece is out of place. I've still got 14,000 other pieces that are just fine. No. What would have happened? If I had done that, what would have happened? His wrath. He would not have been okay. With laser-like intensity, he would have moved heaven and earth to put that piece back in the right place. Why? Because he's angry or flying off the handle? No, because he's not okay with something out of place in the creation he loves. 
The reason we talk about God's wrath as his loving anger kindness, <laughs> you can't separate it from his love. It's, his wrath is his loving anger kindness. All one word. Why? Because just like that kid is not okay with one piece that's out of place in a creation he loves, God is not okay with the evil that will destroy a human that he loves. And because he loves you, his laser-like intensity of wrath will continue, active and resolute. He will continue to oppose evil because evil will harm you. And he's not okay with that cancerous evil of sin in the life of a Christian. And that's what Isaiah sees. And that's what he's prophesying. Turn, if you will, to chapter 9. He's been talking to the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem. Now he shifts his attention to the northern kingdom. They call the northern kingdom Israel or sometimes Ephraim. Uh, 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 he's talking about the same thing. And in this uh, uh, prophecy against the northern kingdom here in chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 8. The word of the Lord goes out and he does it in a four stanza poem. Now, we don't have time to take each stanza and go all the way through every single part of each stanza, but you're going to notice four stanzas of this poem. And at the end of every stanza, you're going to hear this refrain. And it goes like this. For all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is outstretched still. For all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is outstretched still. And here we go, the four stanzas. Stanza number one. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel and all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will rebuild with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but ha, we'll put cedars in their place. Oh, but the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. And here's the stanza, remember? I mean, here's the refrain. For all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. Why? Because as God was trying to get the people's attention, look at this, go back to this part of this. Oh, I'm sorry. Go back to this part of the stanza. Who, fall, uh, who say in arrogance of heart. Yeah, who say in pride and arrogance of heart. God is trying to get the attention of the people. And what do they do? Do they humble themselves? Do they say, whoa, it sounds like God's trying to get our attention. We better pay attention. No. In arrogance, they merely turn their attention immediately to how in self-reliance and arrogance, they're just going to rebuild. Huh. The bricks have fallen. Uh, we'll rebuild with dressed stones. In other words, we're not just going to rebuild. We're going to rebuild it better than it ever was. It used to be bricks. We're going to take these expensive dress stones. It used to be, you know, piddly old sycamores. We're going to put in mighty cedars. Now you think, who would do this? Look around. You know, here we are in a national calamity. Are we hearing our politicians, are we hearing our leaders say, hey guys, time out. We better humble ourselves and pay attention before we talk about rebuilding, before we talk about recover, before we talk about reopen. We need to ask, what is God saying to us? Is he trying to get our attention? Is that what we're hearing? No, everywhere you turn, we're hearing rebuild, recover, reopen. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's see what God has to say. Now you say, Tom, come on, is that, is that really fair uh, to leaders? I mean, shouldn't we talk about rebuild? I, maybe, but it's this pride and arrogance of heart. Um, this actually happened. This literally happened in our uh, country. After 9-11, terrible events of 9-11, everybody's trying to put, put the pieces back together. I get it. The day after 9-11, on, on September 12, 2001, 
Congress reconvenes, and they had this Senate gathering. And at this Senate gathering, uh, Senator Tom Daschle took the floor and he spoke. And of all the things he could have said, I actually found the clip. So this is from C-SPAN 2001, the day after 9-11. Listen carefully to the exact scripture Daschle uses. The day after 9-11. Listen carefully. Let's watch it. Nothing can replace the losses of those that have suffered. I know that there is only the smallest measure of inspiration that can be taken from this devastation. But there is a passage in the Bible from Isaiah that I think speaks to all of us at times like this. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone the fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. That is what we will do. We will rebuild and we will recover. Uh, did, I mean, did you? <laughs> I, I'm not trying to pick on Tom Daschle. Listen, in the days after 9-11, he's doing what everybody's doing. He, he's, he's looking, he's scrambling. So I'm not so concerned about Tom Daschle, but what he says reminds me of arrogance and pride. My, my concern, God doesn't want me concerned about Tom Daschle. He wants me concerned about Tom Richter. And when have I been guilty of that same thing? Instead of turning to God, humbling ourselves, and saying, wait, God, what, are you trying to get my attention? What do you want us to do? I immediately turn to, well, that's it. We're going to rebuild. We're going to reopen. Our leaders are literally saying the very thing that God is saying, that, that's your response? More pride and arrogance? What's the application point? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. I would say it this way. Before we talk about rebuild, recover, and reopen, let's talk about repent, return, revival. Humble ourselves. For all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. Let's, let's look at the second stanza. The second stanza of the poem is political collapse. Look, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. There it is. When, when God speaks, our biggest mistake is to turn away from him instead of turning toward him. To humble ourselves and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's inquire of the Lord. So, verse 14, the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. Who, who, are, who is this head and tail? Well, the prophet tells you. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. Everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. And here's the refrain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Go back and look carefully at verse 16. Those who guide this people have been leading them astray. Those who are guided by them are swallowed up. I mean, how... How modern does this sound? This is 2,700 years ago. How modern does this sound? There's so much distrust in leadership right now, particularly distrust in the media on all sides. On all sides. Some folks are getting swallowed up by news that has become utterly politicized. Other folks are getting swallowed up by crazy conspiracy theories, maybe in a reaction to the media. The point is, when we don't inquire of the Lord, 
We're going to turn to celebrities, college professors, elders, politicians, heads of state, the media. In a nation that is, generally speaking, reacting against God, what kind of wisdom can we expect? Uh, In a thoughtful article by Brett McCracken, he points out, look, when something, I love this quote, when something is biologically objective as a virus becomes politicized, it's obvious just how post into the post-truth era we've become. I love that quote. We've managed to politicize a virus. What's the application point here? I think the application point is go on a knowledge diet. A knowledge diet. Brett McCracken in that article, he goes on to show what he calls the wisdom pyramid. Now, I love this. And I, I even in my notes here, I even uh, took McCracken's picture. There's a book coming out in 20, uh, 2021. He says that he's going to write on this. But I love this. The wisdom pyramid. Do you remember the, the food pyramid? The idea was when you're learning about nutrition and diet and you're teaching children, and e- even for adults, the idea is the food pyramid has at its base the, the nutritious foods we're supposed to really uh, fill ourselves up on. The fruits and vegetables and all that stuff, right? And then at the very top, at the very top of the pyramid are fats and, and, and processed and sugars and salt and all that bad stuff that, that's so good, that tastes so good. But the problem is it's not nutritious. And so we're supposed to use that very sparingly. McCracken makes the point, and I couldn't agree with him more, that just like a food pyramid, the reason our bodies don't function like they should is we're, we're filling up not on these good quality fruits and vegetables, but in these uh, uh, processed sugars and, and fats and, 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 and salts. Well, in the same way, filled with anxiety, our minds are, 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 are constantly reeling. We need the wisdom pyramid. We need to fill ourselves up. He puts at the bottom of the pyramid, the Bible, the word of God. That needs to be our main intake. And then the church, community of faith, building each other up. He puts nature and beauty and then books. And then at the very top is the internet. And at the very top of that is social media. Maybe dabble in it once a year or something. But our foundation, our knowledge diet needs to be the word of God the church, even, even God's nature is better than filling up on that, um, that social media. Anyway, I love that. Humble ourselves, go on a knowledge diet. And now the third stanza, the third stanza for wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. That's interesting. He likens it to a fire and he says, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. Here's an interesting dynamic and we're moving quickly through these four stanzas. Here we are already on number three out of four. But but I just want to pause for a moment and point out the wrath of God. In a sense, uh, part of it is the active wrath of God, right? Through the wrath of the Lord, the, the, the land is scorched. But there's also this thing that happens in a fallen world where where when we begin rejecting God's way, when we turn from the natural order that God has laid out and and we follow our own path, when we sin, there's a sense in which the wrath of God is the natural consequence of rejecting his plan. So when someone rejects God's plan and they're selfish and they steal, the person who gets oppressed or stolen from, you could say that's a natural consequence and a, a, a dire, unfortunate, terrible consequence but it's like a fire. Once we begin pulling away from God, we, we can't control where this fire goes. Okay, so the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. 
They slice meat on the right, but they're still hungry. Isn't that something? Taking out vengeance and being evil, it never actually satisfies. They devour on the left, but they're not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. What does he mean by that? In other words, this is civil war. These are God's people who are supposed to be in unity, devouring one another. Look, Manasseh devours Ephraim. These are tribes of the people of God. Ephraim devours Manasseh, and together they're against Judah. And here's that refrain. It's the third time we've heard it. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. What's the application here? Look carefully back at verse 19. No one spares another. It reminds me of a New Testament verse in Galatians. Paul writes, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So what's the application point? We've heard humble yourself, go on a knowledge diet. I think from this stanza, it's spare one another. Uh, again, uh, Brett McCracken, he, there was an article on the Gospel Coalition that's actually been shared a lot by Christians, and I'm glad. It's called, Church, Don't Let Coronavirus Divide You. Uh, I love that. If you haven't seen that article, check out the Gospel Coalition, uh, uh, and, and just it should be one of the, the, the first results. Don't let coronavirus divide you. Of course, there are different opinions, but one of the things that's happened throughout this calamity, throughout this pandemic is that we've seen how the world operates. The world is devouring one another. Uh, uh, you know, This group thinks it's a big deal. This group thinks it's not a big deal. This, we're making too much of it. We're not making enough of it. This one, wear a mask. This one says, don't wear a mask. This one says, what about my liberty? This one says, but don't use your liberty to hurt others. The Christian response looks completely countercultural. It's not devouring one another. It's humble. It's loving. It's how can we serve one another. It's countercultural counter in that sense. Patience and humility. You can hear Isaiah saying, can't you? I mean, 2,700 years ago, can't you still see Isaiah looking in on our national situation as not only do we have the problem of a virus devouring, but we have uh, people and division and opposition devouring one another. And Isaiah saying, yep, and for all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Like a downward spiral, we come to the fourth stanza, the fourth and final stanza. And now, when, when all, all, all uh, uh, leadership is just pandering to public opinion and when no one can trust another, uh, look who is end up, ends up crushed. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right. That widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. To these uh, 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 who are profiting from all this, turning uh, just oppression, a blind eye to the, to the widow and to the fatherless. And Isaiah asks a question, he actually asks three questions that everyone needs to consider as we think about uh, the wrath of God. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? In other words, to every evildoer, he's saying, there is a day of reckoning. And the first thing you might say is, oh, well, you know, I know people. I'm well connected. He says, really? To whom will you flee for help? That's the second question. Who, who is it? When, when your soul is called to account, when you stand before judgment, you think it's going to matter that you were a VIP, that you, you had friends in high places? To whom will you flee from help? And then you may say, yeah, but, but, but I, I'm secure from everything because I've got money stored up. I've got plenty of economic resources. Okay, that leads to the third question. Where will you leave all your wealth? Because you can't take it with you and it's going to be no good in the day of the Lord. No, nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. 
And here it is, the fourth and final time we'll hear this. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. If you go back to verse 2, you know, they say that during this time of coronavirus, we're in a war with an invisible enemy. Well, one thing about war never changes. I can tell you the loser in every war. In every war in the history of mankind, I can tell you the loser. The loser is always the poor, the oppressed. The weak and the vulnerable is who gets ground into uh, dust in, in all these uh, as the nations rage. In any national crisis, it's the weak and vulnerable who always get hit the hardest. There is a poem that went viral on, uh, on the internet that I think captures well this idea. Uh, the poet says basically that the coronavirus is like this mighty storm out on the ocean. And we're all out on the ocean and we're all in the same storm, right? And kind of captures on popular thinking. We're all in this together. We're all affected by this. But the poet points out, and I agree, and I, I've tried to find who the who the, the writer of this was originally, it, it, I can't tell. But I agree, uh, the, the poet's saying, we're all in the same storm, but here's his line. We're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. Yeah, yeah, the same storm has hit us all, but we're in very different boats. For some people, they're in, you know, big luxury liners, and they're, they're hardly feeling the storm at all. It was a chance just to hang out, relax. They're still cashing a check, you know, watching Netflix and everything. Others are struggling financially, struggling economically. They're not in the same boat. Others are barely hanging on. But even before the COVID-19, they're struggling with a mental illness, depression, fear, anxiety. And now when the storm hits, they're already hanging on by a piece of driftwood. And now when the storm hits, now what? See, we're all in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. So for all this, his hand is not turned away. His hand is outstretched still. His wrath's not turned away. So application point number four is what? Ask the right question. We'll close with this. Ask the right question. If after four stanzas of this poem, you hear, for all this, his wrath is not turned aside. For all this, his wrath is not turned aside. For all this, his wrath is not turned aside. And for all this, his wrath is not turned aside. It seems to me the most obvious question in the world is this. Then what will turn aside his wrath? I mean, if the book of Isaiah really does its job on our hearts this morning, we come to this point in the message and we go, okay, Isaiah, then what, what will turn aside his wrath? As the old hymn says, what can wash away my sin? I can't run from him. He's shown he's holy. He takes sin seriously. What is it then that can turn aside his wrath? And there's one thing. And the prophet tells you, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Who is this child that is born, right? Born as in of a woman, human, but a son is given as in gift from God, as in for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is Jesus the Messiah. This is the one 
who grew up and lived a sinless life. This is the one Jesus, who remember was God in the flesh. This is the one who on the cross of Calvary bore the wrath of God that we deserve. And on that cross, on Calvary's cross, all the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for us and our salvation so that when he died, he could say, it is finished. And now his wrath has been turned aside. And his hand is outstretched, but not in wrath, in love, in reception, to receive any who come. I want to remind you, Christian, that there may come a day, if it hasn't already come, there may come a day when you will think to yourself that uh, eventually I'll just be tossed aside and God will give up on me. You may think at some point, surely I'll sin too much or I've gone too far. I'm hopeless. And... What can I do? God will just give up on me. In that moment, I want you with Isaiah's vision, I want you to look to Jesus. I want you to look to that cross and know that on the cross of Christ, all the wrath of God was paid for out of his love, eternally secured for you. So to all who have received Jesus, to all who have placed their faith and trust in him for salvation, listen carefully. Though throughout your life you may receive correction for wrongdoing, and just like a loving father disciplines his child, you will receive correction, but you will never, 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 never feel the wrath of God. Because that has been dealt with forever on the cross of Calvary. And now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It was born once for all by the spotless lamb, the child born, the son given for us and our salvation. Let's pray. God, grant to us conviction from your Holy Spirit this morning. Help us to know, God, that your wrath is your loving anger kindness. It is your resolute opposition against evil. And if there is sin in us, the last thing we need you to do is enable us to continue in that. We need you to set us free. And we're asking for that. And God, I ask for those who are not yet believers that today would be the day that they hear the words of this prophet so clearly, like, like you're speaking right to them through your word today. And they repent and they turn, they humble themselves. And they cry out to you for salvation. And I pray for believers that they will, they will rejoice in a new way in their salvation. Knowing that you died for us and our salvation, Jesus. That you bore the wrath that we deserved. And you said it is finished. And now we can walk in no condemnation. Grant that we would humble ourselves and uh, not be prideful and arrogant in the midst of this pandemic. Build one another up. We pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. I am so uh, glad that however you're, you're viewing this, uh, you know, today is Sunday, May 31st, but if, if you watch this at a later time, uh, I hope that uh, God continues to speak to you through Isaiah, and I look forward to continuing in this series, if the Lord wills, in the weeks ahead at Coleman First Baptist. Our benediction is Numbers chapter 6, and so uh, I'm going to speak this blessing over you, and I pray that you and your family receive it.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people together said, amen and amen. I love you. Have a great week.